Uh, yeah. yeah. Here we go. What no, up? What's up? There was no meow this time. I know. But I'm dancing. Uh, 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 uh. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hey. We are back for another week of Case Files with Kat. And Ashley. Yeah. Yeah. And the wizard just arrived. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had, uh, we, we've just been actually just sitting around. Actually, we got to pregame a little bit. Yes, I actually had beer this time. Yeah. Ooh, I brought a whole six pack. Yeah, you brought a whole six <laughs> She had a whole six pack, y'all. I didn't drink a whole six pack. I brought a uh-huh, six pack. Don't I lie. beer number two. <laughs> Don't lie. Um, uh, I'm still on one. Damn. Um, okay, so uh, what's up? How's your week been? It's been great, actually. So really, I I was Did on I was interviewed on a podcast what? for my business, not what? true crime. I was gonna say like what this one. No, I'm just She's- <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's been it's been a good week. For Are one. you cheating on me? Inquiry. It wasn't a true crime podcast. It was a podcast for my marketing stuff. Okay. Well, I'm so excited for your marketing (laughs) stuff. But But we've had kind of an interesting week for sure. We got some interesting emails. Um, We did. So excited if it pans out. Um, Yeah. Some potential really cool guest speakers for the next season. So excited. I'm going to do jazz dance. Um, And I know. Very cool. Very, very cool. So what, like, do you, what are you drinking You're in your oh, second well, beer? The first beer was from Galveston Island mm-hmm. Brewery, which was the Coconut Hefeweizen, which literally is what it says. It was a Hefeweizen with coconut. It's a seasonal beer for them. And it's one of my favorites because a lot of coconut beers, they have that really weird, um, like they have that really weird sunscreen kind of taste to it. And that one doesn't. So that's why I really like that one. You know, like a lot yeah, of people, I would I would think yeah. that they would. But this one doesn't. It's a really good blend. You're drinking sunscreen. Well, you know, anyways, and then this one is from Galveston Bay Brewing. What what? And it's the blueberry blonde, which is one of my oh, favorites you love from that. them. Yeah. But I hadn't gotten in a long time. You know, they just relocated to um, a new building. It's huge. They have food. The f- it's a great it's location. Great. It is great. So if you are local been. to our area, um, you know. Check yeah. out the new Galveston Bay Brewing. It, but yeah, Galveston County. Both beers were from Galveston. Uh, anyways, I love this one. It's it is definitely one of my favorites. The the taste of blueberries is so good. Just, it's, I mean, it tastes like actual fresh blueberries and not like artificial. The snozberries really taste like snozberries. <laughs> There's a lot of times I get flavored beer and it's like just you yeah, can no. tell it's artificial or syrupy and. This is not that. So, anyways, what are you drinking? I am drinking. It's from Saint Arnold. Ooh. Avi. Um, Avi. I just l- love St. Arnold. But um, it is the Banger IPA. It is a, oh shit, it's a double IPA. <laughs> oh shit. So I'm on number dose. She's not telling the story, so it'll be fine. But listen, yeah, I actually don't normally drink double IPAs. I've, ha- oh, I've really? kind of like gotten away from that because they're, for me, it's just like, huh, I don't. Jason loves them. He gets them all the time. And so yeah. and like, but I kind of just, I'm going to drink all the other ones and leave the double IPAs. I did not realize that what I was drinking was actually double IPA oh, <laughs> because I, I looked at the 8.4%. Yeah, that's oh, an interesting can for St. Arnold. Hops on repeat. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. It has like, wee, wee, wee. it's got a little, little thing there. Imperial hazy IPA. 
doesn't taste imperial, nor does it particularly <laughs> taste hazy. But okay. you know, I, I am. I, I, it's fresh for me. It's fresh. Drink yeah. fresh. This is the. I, I haven't been drinking much anymore. Like I stopped drinking on the weekends and stuff. Um, S- I know craziness. Weekdays. Weekdays, weekends, both. Well, you stopped drinking on the weekends too. So you yeah, just if been I sober. On, yeah, if I drink on the weekends, <laughs> I typically drink like liquor. Yeah, like at home, like I sip on like. She's got her b- liquor bourbon bottle. I'm as fancy well. now, you know, like you know the pe- in the movies where they have like the liquor in the office. They bring out the little ice cubes. Mad Men. Yes, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's that's what I am now. I'm you know. You're Donald Draper. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just don't drink as much. Okay. Well, okay. You know, I don't know where to go with that. (laughs) That totally ruins the podcast that we were going to be called called Drunk and Trashy with Kat and Ashley. I mean, I still drink on the show. I'm drinking now. I know. (laughs) That was Jason's. That was the wizard's favorite title. I'm down with it. Let's just start a whole separate do two podcasts a week. Drunk and trashy. <laughs> I was like, could you just imagine all the all the teachers that are like, is your mom? <laughs> I mean, they do it with this podcast, is right? You- like, this is true crime. That one can be just a total actual shit show where we just state our opinions on everything. Is your mom cat from Drunk and Trashy <laughs> from Kat, with Cat and Ashley? He was like, Ashley just... N- Nick's that I idea. I didn't even hear that idea. <laughs> you this totally did. You're like, I... no. <laughs> well, that was day number one. You don't remember, but I do. I was probably drunk. <laughs> <laughs> we used to pregame heavily in heavily. season one. And season two. We were so good. We would literally yeah. go to the bar and drink and then go keep drinking. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Don't give away our secrets. Now What's your story? Just, God damn uh, whatever. <laughs> we're just here now. <laughs> my story is not my week. It's your week. I'm just kidding. Shut up. <laughs> Okay, this is what happens when I drink. So last week, I originally said... (laughs) 45 minutes later, we're still going to be on sentence one. Um, So originally, I I said I was going to do... You know who I miss? I miss Sarah, Sarah. That's what we're talking about right now. Okay. Sarah, Sarah. Not the actual host of this show's story. Okay. (laughs) Go ahead. Just kidding. Um... But speaking of old friends of the show, I did see Glenn liked one of our posts recently, so at least he still pays attention Hi, to us. We he didn't say anything about you. my mispronouncing of all the words. So you probably did okay. Or hey. he didn't listen. But or, hey. you know. all right. <laughs> it's going to be another one of those stories. Anyways, um, okay. Originally, I was going to do one of the stories from the first season because we had talked about redoing yes. those. Yes. And I really, really had one I wanted to do because it's one of the most fascinating ones, I think, um, as far as disappearance goes. But then I was doing some research and I came across this story and I was like, I have to do this story. Ooh. Um, just because it was another interesting one where it was kind of solved in a weird way. Um, anyways, so I'm just going to dive in. I love it. Okay, Go. great. Uh, there, have you heard of the Bear Brook murders? Also referred to as Allenstown 4? No. Okay. Well, there were four female murder victims that were discovered inside barrels in the woods of Allenstown, New Hampshire. So, but it was Bear Brook? B-E-A-R Brook Murders. That's the name of the park. Oh. But it was in the town of Allenstown, so sometimes they're referred to as the Allenstown 4. Okay. So, there was two victims found in 1985 and two in the year 2000. 
All four victims were either partially or completely skeletonized and were believed to have died between 1977 and 1981. So even though those ones were discovered in 2000, they were actually murdered closer to the 80s. Oh, wow. So the bodies had been dismembered and wrapped in plastic, and they were stuffed into two 55-gallon steel drums. So there was two bodies in one. Oh, sorry. Two bodies in the other. Okay. Oh, wow. So on November 10th, 1985, a hunter found a metal 55-gallon drum near the site of a burned-down store at Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire, and inside were the bodies of an adult female... And a young girl wrapped in plastic. So the initial reports determined that both had died of blunt force trauma, and the two were buried in an Allenstown cemetery with a tombstone that read, Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl child aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985 in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace. Um, mm. in God's loving care because they could not determine the identities of these bodies because they mm. were so decomposed and there was, they just had nothing to go on and they didn't even know where to start. I mean, this was the second when they found the second, this was the first. first drum. Oh God. So this was just the first drum. And, but again, they could not determine anything from these bodies initially because again, back then they didn't have like, all the technology they have today and the crime scene have been, who knows how long they had been there. Mm. Um, Cause mind you, they thought the murders happened between 1971 and 1981. And this was 1985 when the barrel first barrel was even found. So at bare minimum, four years had gone by. And so they're like, well, evidence is just. So without the victim's identities and there were no solid leads, the case went cold for 15 years. Oh, my gosh. There was just nothing. They had literally nothing. This hunter just came across this barrel. They searched around, but again, it had been years. So weather, animals, hunters. But just right off the bat, like, isn't there a a serial number on that barrel? And can't you trace where it was maybe sold? Okay. All right. It went cold for 15 years. They had no leads. I would be a really good detective. So then on... Um, so on May 19th, 2000, Jesse Morgan, who grew up in a small trailer park surrounded by Bear Brook, was 11 when him and his friend stumbled upon a second barrel. <gasps> Stop it. We were playing a game of hide and seek, Morgan told 2020 in an interview. Oh my God. I was approached by one of the kids in the group that he had come upon a barrel out in the middle of the woods. Excuse me. You know, I start burping every time we do the show. I don't get it. Um, anyways, he said, I was approached by one of the kids in the group that he had come upon a barrel out in the middle of the woods, which was off the trail. It was just odd that the barrel was out there. It was a slightly rusted, dark blue barrel. It's a blue 55-gallon steel drum. It's, it's just kind of sitting out in the woods. The brother that found the barrel went over to it and tried to lift the top of the barrel. And when he did that, we were hit with a smell that was absolutely putrid. One of the brothers just pushed the barrel over, and he watched the barrel fall on its side, Morgan said. The guys jumped onto my four-wheeler, and we booted out of there, and that was the last time that we saw the barrel. So, at the time, Morgan and his friends did not know that there were human remains in the barrel. They they had no idea what it was, oh, yeah. right? They, they opened yeah. it up. that It was awful smell, so they just Oof. threw it back and, and left. So, four months later... From the time that these kids found the barrel and left, Ron, and I'm going to butcher this name because I've never seen it, but I think it's Ron Mont- 
Montplaisir. I don't know, guys. M-O-N-T-P-L-A-I-S-I-R is this man's last okay. name. Okay. Yep. You're you're good. So Ron, <laughs> we're just going to go with Ron. Four months later, after the kids found the barrel, Ron was, um, he was an Allenstown, New Hampshire police officer at the time. And he got a dis- he got a call from dispatch to meet a hunter at the edge of the woods. He was very, very pale, Ron said in, a, in the same 2020 interview. Mm-hmm. He said to me, there's a barrel up in the woods and I think there's some bones in there. So, um, so they find the second barrel, human remains in this barrel, no leads yet in this case. So there was a lady named Rebecca Heath, and she was a research librarian who said she'd become obsessed with the case. And she was just an ordinary woman. You right? need a researcher. She was a you research a librarian. Research. Yes. She became yes. fatuated because she's like, someone has to know something. These, there's these four victims. Someone has to know something. Right. So she helped identify the woman and two children through her own sleuthing. I should add, in the barrel, there was two more women victims, uh, two more children. They were young females. They don't know the exact ages at the time. So there was one adult, three children, children, all women. Familicide. So on an online message board, she connected with a woman who was looking for her family missing missing family members, a woman and her two daughters whose ages and locations match that of Honeychurch, Sarah, and Marie. So the woman also told uh, Rebecca that her missing family members had been married. The woman had been married to a man with the last name Rasmussen. 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 Mm-hmm. So police believe that all four member or, or excuse me all four murders occurred roughly at the same time despite investigators inexplicably missing the second drum in 1985. So according to the oh, investigators the reason that it took so long for the second drum to be recovered is that it was located outside of the proximity of the initial crime scene. So so when they found the first barrel and they searched the crime scene, they didn't go out far enough, but the barrel was there. So it wasn't that, you know, these other murders happened and then they came back and put the barrel in the same place. They just didn't find it. They did determine the cause of death for the children inside this barrel was also blunt force trauma. So the adult woman that was um, in the barrel was later identified as Honey Church. And she was determined to be honey, honey church, literally honey church. Like one word, one word. Honey, honey church. church. Why? I don't know. Okay. Later identified as honey church. The the lady on the board that was telling, like on the message board that was talking to the research librarian, yeah. said that that um, it was honey church. Sarah and Marie. So I don't know if that. Was supposed to be like their last names, like Sarah Honey Church and Marie Honey Church, but they just refer to her as Honey, as Honey Church, Church in this Weird. incident. Okay. So, for all purposes, the adult was Honey Church, Sarah, Sarah Honey Church, however you want to, whatever you would like to call her, but okay. that, those were her names. Okay. Um, the one child was named Marie. Um, anyways, it was determined that she was Caucasian with possible Native American ancestry. Her age at the time of death was estimated to be 23 to 33. She had curly or wavy brown hair and between she was between 5 foot 2 inches and 5 foot 7 inches in height. Her teeth showed significant dental work, including multiple fillings and three extractions. The three girls were thought to have some Native American heritage. They had light or European American complexions. 
So the girl that was found with the adult female was later identified as Vaughn, and she was between 5 and 11 years old. She had symptoms of ammonia, a crooked front tooth, and um, she had like a, a space between her top teeth, two earrings in each ear, and was between 4 feet 3 inches and 4 feet 6 inches tall. And her hair was ha- was wavy and light brown, and she mm. had no dental fillings. So the middle child uh, is currently unidentified, still unidentified to this day. They refer mm. to her as the middle child. Um, she had a gap between her front teeth and died at an age between two and four. She had brown hair and was about three feet, eight inches. She had an overbite and was, which was probably noticeable. She had suffered, um, she had, she had, uh, sorry. DNA proved that the child was fathered by a man named Terry, uh, Rasmussen. I can't, Rasmussen. Yes. Rasmussen. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I can't say it now. That's okay. Ross. Is it R-O-S-S or R-A? Yeah, Rasmussen. Ras, just Rasmussen. Rasmussen. There you go. Terry Rasmussen. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get it. (laughs) You know, guys, I actually do practice these words before. Yeah, it's okay. Then it's Um, like, then you're on the spot. That's it. In February 2020, it was announced that DNA analysis suggested the child was primarily Caucasian with slight Asian, African, and Native American heritage. The organization later released an updated version of the child's Facial recognition, but still no one has confirmed um, who she is. So the last child was the youngest girl, and she was later identified as Mick Waters. I'm assuming they're using last names here because I can't imagine the first name being Mick Waters or Honeychurch or Vaughn as first names, but it, I mean, it, they could be. But anyways, it says the youngest was later identified as Mick Waters and was estimated to be one to three years old. She had long, blonde, light brown hair and was between two feet, one inches and two feet, six inches, and also had a gap in her front teeth. Hmm. So in the early days of the investigation, authorities publicized the case in the United States and some parts of Canada, and at least 10 possible identities were ruled out. They had hundreds of leads, but the bodies were not identified at the time. Um, like the middle, the middle child was not identified at the time. Right. They still cannot figure it out. Um, so in June, they still, they still had not, even with that lady saying that her family members were missing and that she thought it was that these could be them. They mm-hmm. still could not actually confirm the identities of these women. So the bodies had not wow. been identified. In June 2013, new versions of the victim's facial reconstruction was created <gasps> by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. These versions included their dental information, showing how their teeth could have been affected uh, or could have affected the appearance of their face. The reconstructions mm. were created in black and white as their skin tones and eye colors could not be determined. In November 2015, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a third set of reconstruction of the four victims at a news conference at the New Hampshire State Attorney General's office. In 2014, police announced that DNA profiling had revealed through MTDNA that the women and oldest and youngest girls were maternally related. This means that the women could have been the girl's mother's and or older sister. So they weren't sure what she was, but they were definitely related. And in 2015, the woman was identified as the mother of two of the girls. Oh, uh, gosh. I'm just so interested to find out 
Yeah. So other forensics information showed that the woman and children lived together in northeastern United States okay. between two weeks and three months before their deaths. Whoa. I don't know what other forensics information would have shown that. Like I know. that could determine where they lived. They didn't really go into detail. And I looked up a bunch of different articles and none of them explained what that forensic information was that could determine where they lived before they died. It could be, I mean, my guess is what if there was pollen in their lungs? Yeah, but they I were decomposed. They were decomposed. They yeah. That's why they couldn't tell their identity. Oh, man. I don't know. So, investigators have concluded that the woman and the two children lived in an area where their bodies were found. Advanced forensic testing showed the two- to four-year-old girl, since identified as Rasmutin's daughter, probably spent most of her childhood in, the either, in either the Upper Northeast or Upper Midwest, perhaps Wisconsin. And in 2019, it was stated that the non-related child most likely originated from Arizona, Texas, California, or Oregon. And, and hmm. then, yeah, I don't know how they can determine that. I'm over know. here, like, looking at Ashley, like, are you fucking getting, like, that Tell seems- from North Carolina. I don't know how they determine it. But it says the advanced forensic testing. This is, like, going back to your story the other day about, like, the pollen and the yeah. craziness. But, well, I mean, like, how, do, how, did, how are they finding that out? Yeah. How are they deciding? That's crazy. In January 2017, it was announced that Denise, uh, excuse me, in January 2017, <laughs> it was announced that Denise uh, Bowden had been missing since 1981 and was connected to the murders. Bowden disappeared from Manchester, New Hampshire, along with her young daughter and then boyfriend Robert Bob Evans. Evans later abandoned a young girl that they call Lisa. It Lisa's in quotation marks at a campground, and she was found to not be his daughter. Oh, he he has something in his mouth. <laughs> oh, okay. it's a toy. It's a toy. I was like, what is that coming forward? Um. Anyways, uh, sorry guys, I got very distracted by. By the meowing. He wants to play right now. He's like, this is a great story, but I'm really bored. Um, Anyway, so Evans later abandoned a young girl, Lisa, at a campground, and she found to not be his daughter. Uh, Bowden was not reported missing until 2016 when her daughter resurfaced alive and well in California after there was uh, more publicity about the murders and, and Bowden's disappearance. The daughter chose to keep her name private. Um, the keep, keep going. I'm going. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children sub- subsequently announced that an unidentified man, known only by the alias Robert Evans, was found through DNA to be the father of the middle child who was not related to the other three victims. So, so the middle child that was unidentified in the barrel was related to this man that was accused of the disappearance of this Denise woman um, through the young girl that was actually alive that he left and, and she was in another state and she came forward. She just didn't want to leave her name. I know it's like, you need a board here connecting all the dots, but through her and through some DNA, DNA, they determined Robert Evans and they use that in quotation marks because it's not his real name. Okay. Cause that's like, that's like an actor's name. <laughs> well, yeah. And you know, yeah. It's not it's not his real name. Um, he, it's just the name he was using. But they did determine he was the father of that unidentified child. So authorities believe that Evans was the killer of the 
Bear broke victims, but did not elaborate at that time. (laughs) (laughs) Authorities said... Shut up. Authorities said in 2018 that the Bear Brook woman was not Denise. That they and they also said that Robert Evans was a pseudonym, and that the man's legal name or legal identity it was unknown. So they determined that it wasn't Denise in the barrels, and that Robert Evans was not his real name. That he'd been going by a fake name all this time. So Evans, quote quote Evans, died in prison in December 2010, and mm. he had been convicted and sentenced as Evans for the 2002 murder and dis. Memberment of his wife at the time, um, who was Unsen June, which was a chemist in California. It's wow. a good name. So uh, Evans was married to this woman, or whatever his name was, but he was going by Robert Evans at the time. He had been married to this chemist. He murdered her, cut her up. He got sentenced, went Jesus. to prison, convicted as Robert Evans, which is really bizarre since that wasn't his name. I mean, but he died in prison December 2010. Fuck. In June 2017, police released a video of a police interview of Evans in hopes of finding his true identity. Two months later, Roberts Evans was... So he went to prison, as, went uh, went through trial, mm-hmm. still not... Convicted and died in prison. Without giving his real... Without nobody find Wow. Judicial system of the United States, folks. In June 2017, police released this video. They're like, well, maybe someone knew his real identity. Sure. I don't know why they didn't do it sooner. This was seven years after he died. Um, But two months later, Robert Evans was confirmed as Terry Rasmussen through Y-DNA testing from a DNA sample contributed by one of his sons from what is believed to be his first marriage. When they say contributed, that's like 23andMe, Ancestry.com contributed. So, like, give that DNA, (laughs) y'all. Just know that your DNA sample could lead to your unknown father, mother, child, son, whatever, being convicted murder. Love it. Um, Here, I'm giving it to you. Yes. I'm going to give it. So, born in 1943, Terry was a native of Denver, Colorado. He married in 1969 and had four children and lived in Phoenix, Arizona and Redwood City, California. Mm. His wife left him between 1973 and 1974, and his family last saw him around Christmas of 1974. Wow. The, the murders they thought happened between like 1974, 1981. Mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. So one of his sons from the marriage provided the DNA sample that confirmed Terry as Evans in June 2017. The senior, Rasmussen, known as the chameleon killer, is believed to have used at least five different aliases in a decade-long wow. run of crimes across the country, including at least five murders and likely more. <gasps> So he was just using fake identities. Fake identities. So there's life. really no true count of how many crimes he may have committed or wow. how many women he may have actually murdered because he was going by these different names. But for all purposes, Terry's serial killer name was the Chameleon Killer because he just changed names, changed cities. Oh, oh. my gosh. On June 6th, 2019, New Hampshire investigators held a press press conference regarding the case and revealed the th- the identities of three of the victims. Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch was the mother of Marie Elizabeth Vaughn and Sarah Lynn McWaters. 
all of whom went missing from California around Thanksgiving 1978 while she was dating Rasmussen. Honeychurch had an argument with her mother and left the residence, never contacting her relatives again. So they got into an argument on Thanksgiving. She left, never heard from her again. Honeychurch may have adopted the alias Elizabeth Evans to use in legal documents during May of 1980. It is believed that all four murder victims were murdered before 1981, as Terry was known to have left New Hampshire after this time. Sarah's younger half-brother, who had never met her, created a post in 1999 on the Ancestry.com website in efforts to locate her. She was born in Hawaiian Gardens, California, when her father was in the Marines. Similar posts also aided in the identifications of the other victims. Mm. Um, Marlies had previously named, or excuse me, had previously married Marie's father in June of 1971 and divorced by 1974. She married Sarah's father in September 1974, and the two were separated by the time she was known to be dating Terry. So the children both went through periods where they were in the custody of their fathers, but Marlies was later re- she would later regain guardianship and by October 1978 Sarah's father was seeing another woman and Sarah was in the care of her mother. So she was in the care of Honeychurch. So Honeychurch and Vaughn's funeral, they were held in November 2019 in Allenstown during which they were given a new headstone bearing their names. In attendance were members of Honeychurch's family, Terry's daughter from his first marriage, and Sarah was laid to to rest in Connecticut closer to her father's family. Officials say investigators continue uh, to try to identify the fourth victim, who they identify as the middle child. They say she was born between 1975 and 1776 in California, Texas, or Arizona, That child is the biological daughter of Terry. Um, They have not been able to confirm who the mother is, but they are. That mother is dead. Yes, that's what they say. They fear that the mother is dead because she, they've been, no one has reported this child missing. No one has come forward after seeing sketches. So they assume that he at some point murdered the mother of the child. In February. And that mother was probably alienated or separated or whatever the word is from isolated from her family for whatever reason. Oh, in February, 2020, a new rendering of the fourth victim was released by the national center for missing and exploited children and New Hampshire state police. In 2021, investigators revealed the middle child's mother had relatives in Pearl river County, Mississippi. The following year, they determined that she was most likely a descendant of Thomas Deadhorse Mitchell, a man who was born in 1836 and mm. would be the fifth or sixth great-grandchild or grandfather of the child. Wow. So as DNA was developing, you know, they, they could make more and more connections. So that's that's the four victims. The two the the three that were identified to be the mother and two daughters who were the missing relatives of the lady yeah. from the message board. So thanks to that, it led to Terry and the investigation of Terry. But unfortunately, he was never charged for these because he was sentenced to prison as Robert Evans and died in prison in 2010, way before they ever determined who his identity was and all of that. But um, there are other possible victims of Terry that I'm just going to mention. 
Are they saying that these are possible victims because of location? Mm, Because of location, timing, motive, style. Okay. Relevant, like how close it was to other. Um, Again, it's it's hard for, for them to determine exactly how many he killed because of his identities. God. And the fact he went to prison under a different name that Nobody wasn't even his. Nobody could do that now. Nobody could do that now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he, so Terry lived a mile and a half away from a 14-year-old named Lauren Ron when she disappeared from Manchester, New Hampshire in April 1980. Now, Denise Denault, the woman that went missing on Thanksgiving, was a 25-year-old woman who lived two blocks from Lauren's residence, and she went missing from a bar in June 1980. So Denise had that argument with her family on Thanksgiving. She left. She went to this bar two miles away from where that 14-year-old went missing um, in the same year. So the 14-year-old went missing in 1980. She went missing in June 1980. And Terry lived a mile and a half away from both of them. So Damn. Denise had been living on the same street as Terry. And police and FBI agents conducted a search in the Manchester uh, area after receiving an anonymous tip regarding Denise in November 2017 after Terry was announced as the Bearbrook killer. A second search was conducted in May 2018. By 2020, New Hampshire Senior Assistant Attorney General Je- uh, Jeff said there was no evidence there was no connection between Denise and Terry, but that the interest in his case brought renewed attention to her disappearance. Hmm. But they were pretty sure it was him because they lived on the same street. He was a known killer. Right. It's just it, all the things sort of point to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, all of the things. I mean, how weird would it be to live on the same street as a serial killer and a different serial killer takes you and kills you? That's just, Um, (laughs) you know what I mean? That's just, I mean, I guess anything is possible, but to me, that's super bad luck. You live on the same street as a serial killer and a different serial killer kidnaps you and kills you. Um, Anyways, Elizabeth Lamont was 17 years old when she disappeared from the Youth Development Center in Manchester in 1984. She left the group home after receiving a furlough, so she was not reported missing until police were seeking information of Terry in 20, excuse me. She was not reported missing until police were seeking more information on Terry in 2017. So, Elizabeth was part of this group home. She was granted temporary furlough to, you know, go away on the weekend or whatever. She did not return in 1984, but she wasn't reported missing until 2017 when people came around asking about (laughs) Terry. So, just... Don't send your kids there or... At that time... A tipster speculated that she could have been the Elizabeth Evans that had been listed as Terry's wife during his time in Manchester. However, DNA from Lamont's relatives later proved that she was one of the victims in the Redhead Murders, a series of unsolved murders across the United States which were unrelated to Terry. Who will have to do a story on the Redhead Murders? Lamont had been found in Tennessee in 1985, killed about four months after her disappearance. So she was taken by a whole different serial killer. This was... What are the fucking... It wasn't Denise, but it was, you know, same city and everything, same area, and it was a different serial killer that took her. But, um, yes, she was a victim of the Redhead Murders, which is still unsolved to this day. It is an interesting case. I definitely... We will definitely have to cover the Redhead Murders at a certain time. But, yes. Um, And then 
Lisa, oh, excuse me, when Lisa was interviewed by detectives, Lisa, the girl that was dropped off at the park that didn't want to be identified, the one that provided her DNA. Right. Was interviewed by detectives in 1986. They asked her if she had any siblings. She said that she did, but they died eating grass mushrooms when they were out camping. Her no. answer led police to believe no. that Terry killed them too. Eating grass mushrooms? Yes. Okay. They died eating grass mushrooms while they were out camping. And so that led police to believe that Terry had killed them too because they were all camping together. Like the whole oh the family was camping together. So, um, an assistant sheriff named John Huber from California speculated that Terry may have been responsible for killing Amanda Schumann Diza in 1995. Her body was discovered by scavengers inside of a refrigerator, which had been dumped in a canal. Like Terry's confirmed victims, she had died of blunt force trauma to the head. Having previously been an unidentified victim known as the San Joaquin. I don't know how to say it. J-O-A-Q-U-I-N. San Joaquin. Joaquin. Uh-huh. Jane Doe. And the lady in the fridge, which is an awful name. for. If I die, please don't give me a weird nickname. Um, la Dama del Refrigerador. She was eventually identified. <laughs> she was um, later identified on February 23rd. Um, 2023 so she wasn't identified until this year um but yeah so those Mm. are um wow so so she was so the last victim the one that was in the fridge was uh, (sighs) identified it by forensic genetic genealogy um which is it's oath othram which is used to resolve unsolved murders, disappearance, and identification of unidentified descendants or murder victims known as John Doe's or Jane Doe's. And the company offers law enforcement agencies tools, programs um, to infer kinship among individuals, both closely and distantly related, through a combination of um, different kinds of testing mm-hmm. as well as forensic uh, sequencing of DNA. They have a, um, they have assisted in identifications of many cold cases. Um, they listed some. I haven't heard of these. Maybe you guys have heard of these. But they were actually able to solve cases. Beth Doe, Septic Tank Sam, and Delta oh, Dawn. What? No. So many cases um, are not publicized by the company until after they've been successfully identified. Oh, good. Um, but they were featured on like the 500th episode of Law & Order SVU. They do a lot of great work, like a lot of behind the scenes. They really help solve a lot of murders with this DNA sequencing. Like you can look them up. There's like hundreds of murders they've helped in. Um, but... They were used to help identify this last woman that was in the fridge. They don't know if she was his his victim, um, but at least seems but, like. But at least they were able to put a you know a name to her to her body, so she didn't die. Like she wasn't buried as a Jane Doe. Yeah. So I know it was a super short story, but that's my story. That's really interesting because the it kind of I feel like we saw like the beginnings of his MO. Like we saw like this one um that was identified later uh the San Joaquin mm-hmm. lady in the fridge that that was the the precursor to the barrels that there were yeah. like other things happening. 
And what I've I found interesting was that it was basically solved by Ancestry.com. Well, basically you know, solved. Like DNA yes. samples and stuff. And through the sequencing and stuff, like it's just amazing what the technology can do nowadays. Yeah. Like how like the little things like that find people, like you said, the the episode last time with the botanist and the flowers and the pollen and like forensics is yeah. amazing. I know. It's I hate my life choices. I wish I that, hate my life choices. I wish when 100%. I was in high school they're like, you could solve murders. I'm in. Sign me up, please. Sign me up. Well, when I did my test, Olivia yeah. getting to do that in fourth grade, yeah. you're going to learn about blood spatter when and I DNA in, analysis. When I was in fourth grade, we did a career test that would tell you what you should be. Can you guess what they said I should be? A caterer. A cheesemaker. I was so close. <laughs> they said my ideal job would be a cheesemaker. I don't even know what the fuck a cheese. I mean, obviously they make what cheese. Is a cheese. I mean, but is that a job? That's what, a job? How did I answer those questions? That <laughs> You're led like, to me I being, love cheese. I, I don't remember it. I just remember Cheddar. it. Being, I just remember that was Free. the result. Nowhere did they tell me I could be solving crime scene or or whatever unsolved murders i got lawyer social worker or fundraiser guess what i do i'm a fucking fundraiser (laughs) see we could have all just been different lives you could have been a lawyer i I could have been been solving the crime scenes Ah, we could still have a podcast (laughs) we could still have a podcast and then but it would be like cheese and law no no i meant like if i was the forensics like we could talk about the crime scenes you could talk about closely i mean i could still bring cheese We'll have charcuterie. We'll have charcuterie boards up the wazoo. I love it. Yeah, coochie so. boards. Um, okay, so next week I do have a story. I'm like oh. I tell, I'm still working on it. Look, I have a speech to write for this week, so I'm yeah, worry. work on it. That's okay, it. That's, that's, it. Fine. that's that's well, that's the that's the the we, teaser. We great teaser. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait to can't tune wait. in. Can't wait to be here can't next wait. week. I've had, um, I've had two double IPAs. We still haven't had anyone message us with ideas for the new season or what you'd like to see. Or Y'all. if you would just like us to shut up. I mean, nothing. <laughs> no one. So we're very serious when we tell you guys, if you don't send us ideas. We're just going <laughs> to do our own ideas. It's just going to be like this for, for the rest of time. For all of season six. <laughs> then you're going to be like, God, why don't they just Why do, do we even listen to these people? Well, you should have sent your ideas in. We love you very much. We love you very much. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.